Once again, my name's Jacob. Myself and Brian over there are a couple members of the team that do the facilitation of this discussion. So if at any point you guys have questions or uh, comments or suggestions for us, how we can do this better, we want to hear those. Um, this is week two of us talking about politics and Christian faith. How do we merge those two things? So last week we heard from Dr. Stephen Todd, and he really did a great job at setting up the tension between... Um, it's not hard to set up the tension in that yeah, subject. <laughs> it's true. Um, one thing that he pointed out I thought was really good. He said, um, you can want Jesus in your life. You can be following him. Uh, you can be reading scripture and be led reasonably to uh, be a member of either political party. So it's not as though there's a Christian party and a non-Christian party. Um, the same beliefs lead to uh, opposing views. Mm -hmm. So that's why we need to have these discussions, and I'm excited to see how he resolves that tension today. <laughs> um, Brian will be passing out an email sign-up sheet, so if you guys don't mind, thank you. I would love for you to put your names down, and you'll just get emails throughout the week saying, this is what we talked about, and maybe a challenge uh, like I did last week. By the way, how many of you actually decided to talk to somebody about their political views after our discussion last week? Hey. Hey, 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 all right, okay, well, we'll try again after this week, so I was actually really surprised by the feedback I got. I asked a coworker what was important to her, and uh, she said our image internationally, she said if we're going to elect a president, he needs to be able to represent us well to all the other countries, and uh, so she was really concerned that whoever got elected, she wanted them to be able to do that well. So we talked through that a little bit and had a good discussion, um, and I'd encourage you guys to do the same. So we're going to get started. Um, I'm just going to pray, and then uh, we'll start. So Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for today and just for the time to be able to come and, and ask you for direction in our lives about um, things that matter to us. And uh, I just ask that you'd be over this time, um, that you'd give us a spirit of humility and gentleness with one another, that we could be learners who are just seeking you. Um, I'd ask that you give Dr. Todd strength uh, as he's coming off his surgery, just stamina to make it through the day and, and clarity of thought um, and word, and that you just lead him uh, as he leads us. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jake. You know, I'm, I feel like the guy healed by Jesus says he went walking and leaping and praising God, but I'll just stick to walking. Uh, thank you all for your kind comments. I'm doing really well the last day and a half. I just felt like I kind of turned a corner yesterday, and I'm walk I am walking. I'm, I was so thrilled at my post-op appointment uh, beginning of the week when the, Linda took me, because she doesn't trust me to tell her exactly what the doctor said, you know, and she was, because I've had three surgeries in 20 months, as I mentioned, and I'm always eager to start driving sooner than the doctor wants me to drive, so she was sitting there when, and said, when can he drive? And the doctor said, he's free to drive any time now. And it's like, Yes! So, see, see! <laughs> so, I'm driving, and I'm, I'm getting around, and it's still pretty stiff, but I'm doing well. So, in terms of talking to people about these kind of things, if you found, I found that, that ranting on social media always changes everyone's mind. Has <laughs> that, that been your experience? Uh, <laughs> so, so, I want to give away the punchline at the beginning. And sometimes, and, and I'm... Uh, I'm more of a pastor teacher than I am 
uh, a professional educator, though I find myself a bit in that role now. Uh, and so, uh, which is astounding because while I do have a fair bit of education, I don't have any formal education in education. You know, so my wife is an educator. I'm just a guy with a lot of opinions, you know, who gets to talk. But one thing I have learned about education is that prior knowledge and backfilling what you want people to know before you expose them to them is a really helpful way of increasing a person's ability to learn something. So having said that, I want to give the punchline away that we want to talk about, kind of lead up to today's topic. If we look at church history from the earliest days, and this, this uh, document I, we gave you today is my best effort at the moment. It is by no means exhaustive, and it's not the best thing out there. It's just what I put together. But maybe it'll be helpful for some talking points. I believe there is a compelling case to be made for the church engaging with the political structures of the day. Having said that, I think history will point out that the church is at its best in that relationship when it is a combination of or either prophetic and adversarial rather than married to the political structures. Okay, that's kind of the end of the, of the story. So having said that, what we're going to do is look at, just take a quick chronological look and first look at the early church. The first 300 years of Christianity, the followers of Christ were considering themselves using language today that they would not have used in those days, using language that would be, in our mind, uh, American. They were resident aliens. The idea that you live, that you're living in one kingdom, if you will, but your, your allegiance and your citizenship is of another kingdom. This idea that uh, in the world, what does Jesus say, but not of the world, okay? And they were a persecuted minority, terribly persecuted, and never dreamed of ever having any kind of corporate um, ability to exercise influence over the system. They were, they were the, the abused, the victims. They were the, the persecuted minority, as I said before. So they would have never imagined a vote or the ability to, to, to direct or move the ship's rudder, as it were. At the same time, the early church tended towards nonviolence and pacifism. Uh, it was during this time that that word martyr, martyrus in the Greek, really became identified with a witness of Christ. A witness of Christ is someone who likely will lose their life. And that, of course, happened uh, repeatedly in the, in the first few centuries of the church. Okay? So, what changed? You've all heard about Constantine, right? Everybody heard about Emperor Constantine? He was uh, in the succession of, of emperors over Rome, uh, Caesar and, and Diocletian and uh, Nero and all of these others. And in 312, Constantine had a vision. And in his vision, he saw the symbol, we call it the Cairo. I, I printed it on your little paper. It looks like a P with an X. The P is actually... Uh, the Greek letter Rho, which would be R, and the X is the Greek letter Chi, and Chi, Rho, are the first two letters of the word Christus, or Christ, the Messiah. And Cairo, that little kind of P with an X, early on, even before the, the ichthus you know, fish, became a symbol 
of followers of Christ. I grew up in a Lutheran tradition, and many of our altar hangings had the Cairo on it. Maybe in a uh, Presbyterian or Anglican or Catholic uh, Methodist church, you might have seen the same um, symbol, right? You've all seen it? So Constantine has this vision or this dream, and he sees... Christ and this symbol Chiron in the vision, God says, by this symbol you will conquer. And so we understand from that that he accepts Christianity uh, and eventually designates it as the official religion of Rome. There have been volumes of books written on the, 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 the sincerity of Constantine's conversion. Uh, we have, uh, for the most part, those are straw men. Because all we have is the, the journals and the recordings that this man had an encounter with Christ. Uh, so I, 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 you know, I don't know. Uh, was it a sincere conversion or not? Possibly. Uh, one thing is for certain, uh, things changed and he certainly became, quote, pro-Christian. Okay? And so I wanted to look at some of the pros and the cons of Constantine and what's often called Constantinianism, where the church is no longer the persecuted minority, but the church is the religion of the powerful. And in fact, the church becomes an arm of the political power. Well, there were some positive things. There was a lot of uh, there were horrific things going on in many of the, of the indigenous and pagan uh, religions even into Roman mythology and, and some of the Roman paganism. And there were still children were sacrificed. Children were killed. Uh, not abortion, but actually children after birth. And so one of the first things Constantine did was he outlawed infanticide. He outlawed the killing of, of innocent children, which no one could argue is a, a bad thing, a, a very positive thing. He made Sunday a day of rest. It was him it was him that is responsible for the fact that after church today, you cannot get Chick-fil-A. It was Constantine. You know? Yes. Acts chapter, the question was, were churches already celebrating? Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Uh, that's the Eutychus story, you know, where he falls out of the window and dies, and, and Paul prays and resuscitates him. Uh, it says, on the first day of the week, when the church was gathered to break bread, as was their habit, Paul comes in. Already early on, Sunday we had replaced Saturday as the, as the Lord's Day. In fact, they no longer used the word Sabbath, but rather tended to use the word the Lord's Day. So Sunday was already the day. And Constantine codified it and said, Sunday's a day of rest. Everything's closed on Sunday. So, you know, I mean, whether that's good or bad, that was something, you know, that positive, I suppose. A big one, though, is he ended the persecution of Christians by declaring that Christianity was... First, he declared Christianity is no longer illegal. But then, a few years later, he made another edict where he declared Christianity is the religion of the Roman Empire. And it's after that that we have stories, and sadly, we have no reason not to believe them in some of these cases, stories where you had Christian clergy, or, or a name at least, standing by a river and pronouncing baptism while people at the point of a sword, entire villages are being required to walk through the rivers of baptism, and they're all converted into Christianity. Okay? So, but Christians were no longer persecuted at this point. And then 
He honored the bishops of the church. He helped the churches. So what are the cons? Well, one of the cons is prior to Constantine, Christians never took up arms and, and performed any kind of act of violence. After Constantine, Christians would begin to fight. There were forced conversions. There was a marriage of the state and the church. Yeah, Joe. Okay. No, that's okay. Sure. About the pacifism? Yeah, that simply there's no mention historically of any Christian serving in the military prior to 170. Mm-hmm. But in 170 AD, there's a description of the 12th Legion, which they say was composed yes. of the Yes. Army's a little different. Uh, yeah. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And most of these are arguments from silence. It could be an argument from silence. There's been a, there's been a lot of, of, of academic study done on the the attitude of the early church fathers with regard to pacifism, with regard to a, 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 the, those who are typically conscripted into military duty being the exception rather than the rule with regard to the, the, the ecclesia. Okay? The point being Constantine, and, and I'm not trying to argue a pacifism here, the point being that Constantine, after Constantine, one of the one of the, I think, unfortunate uh, responses was that the people in power tend to act powerful. You know, people that are in political power tend to act powerful as opposed to the minorities who are the victims, okay? Not so much a judgment as an observation that Constantine changed the balance of power in the church dramatically. I think there's an argument to be made that Christians were in Roman military uh, uh, assignments, but that was not the norm. That was a, a Roman soldier that came to Christ, not a Christian who grew up and said, I want to be a Roman soldier, would be my argument. Yes, sir? Yes. And, and yeah, and you're right, and yet, one of the things they did was kept the peace among oppressed peoples and slaves. You know, that was part of their job, was to keep the, the occupied people in check. And I, I'm not arguing that, that's not the point. The point is, the church went from being the victims of persecution to being in alliance with the ruling power, and there were some positive influences culturally, and there were some negative influences and one of the negative influences I, su- I suggest is two of them. One is there, be- there grew an intolerance towards non-Christians from the top down, okay, that I would say was a seed to what we see in the Crusades. Okay? And at the same time, when we move to the medieval period of time, now I've got to be honest with you, the one most boring class I ever had in seminary was medieval church history. There's a reason they call it the Dark Ages. <laughs> I know some people love reading St. Anselm and others, but I had a hard time staying awake. You know, it was just, oh my gosh. But one thing became clear. Somewhere between 312 
and say the uh, 13th, 14th, 15th century, the church leadership structure began to mirror the political leadership structure. Will we all agree with that? It was that the, the cardinals, the pope and the cardinals and the archbishops and the bishops and the ways in which we hear stories of, of bishop uh, seats being sold and bartered and those kinds of things, the, uh, the treaties and, and the, the way in which the church conducted business looked a lot like, if not exactly like, the way the Roman Empire did business. And in fact, the Roman Empire morphed, if you will, into becoming known as the Holy Roman Empire. And it became the seat of both the church and the state. So wasn't the church in competition with the political Say anything, I'm sorry. Wasn't the church in competition with the political Yeah. So it was still replacing the political And you know this well, Steve. We, we, see, we see times where the church would influence, i.e. the Pope or the Holy See, would influence more authority and then the, the uh, governments would, would kind of push back. And there was, uh, there was constantly this... Um, you know, it walks like a duck, it talks like a duck. <laughs> you know, the church is trying to maintain its power base, it would seem, you know. And, and, and for possibly even right reasons. You know, we're not just slamming all of them. We're just saying there was a marriage. We were joking before a couple of us were talking upstairs that Christian engagement with politics is necessary, but the word engagement, think of it now from the romantic side. Engagement's fine, just don't marry politics. <laughs> You know, be engaged, but don't get married. You know what I mean? It's like, uh, let's keep a little bit of distance because they will let you down. They will let you down. Uh, so by the time we're in the medieval period, uh, we've got Constantinianism has grown, the Holy Roman Empire, the church leadership mirrors political leadership, corruption exists, but the monastic communities are the ones who opt out and choose to, to attempt to live a more sincere or devout or biblically defined kind of Christian life. So kind of parallel to the whole, um, the, this whole political Roman structure uh, that, that's, that's developing around the Pope and, and the archbishops and the cardinals, you have this alternative kind of parallel universe of um, Ignatius and Benedict and Francis of Assisi and guys who who are choosing to disengage from that marriage and live simul- kind of simultaneously another way. Bruce. Uh, Dominicans, Franciscans, Jesuits, often though, in their independence, they went outside the structure of the time and they were quite missional. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, like I think of the movie The Mission, you know, years ago. Uh, the, the, the monastic communities were missional. Uh, and so, you know, if you want to... We Protestants, especially kind of the non-denominational, evangelical-type uh, Protestants, we tend to view the Catholics as them and, as opposed to us. The church was the church, you know? And if you want to know where... Where were the, the, the passionate followers of Christ in the medieval period? The Dominicans, the Franciscans. The, you know, I mean, they, that was the group. These are the folks who are saying, the Bible says this, Jesus did this, let's go do that. Let's live that way. And, and, and living in radical poverty or radical obedience. And, and 
you know, there's, it, there's a great book, by the way. It has nothing to do with politics, but it's just a great book. We were all reading it here downtown about just when we first started New Life Downtown. Um, Glenn and Evan bought a whole bunch of copies and passed them out, and that was uh, Chasing Francis. Any of you guys ever read that? What a great book. Chasing Francis by, um, oh, he's a friend of, of Glenn's. Um, what's his last name? Uh, uh, he's an Anglican priest, so of course he's a friend of Glenn's. Um, uh, what's that? No, no, no. He lives in the East Coast, New England. But it's called Chasing Francis. A great, it's, it's, a, it's a novel, but it, you, it, you would, you'll thoroughly enjoy it. Um, it. It's just a great book kind of retracing Francis's steps in a modern, through a modern uh, lens. Um, okay, so, so this is continuing on for several centuries, and you've got medieval feuds and fiefdoms and little kingdoms, and you've got these alternative communities, monastic communities that have kind of opted out of the power base and the politics. And then you've got a, a rather insecure, devout monk by the name of Martin Luther who the Pope accused as a, as a little drunk monk, or a little drunk priest, that's what he called him. He said, get this little drunk priest of yours in line. Uh, and Luther, of course, comes on the scene, and, and we're not, this is not a class in, in Reformation history, but I love Reformation history. I was raised Missouri-centered Lutheran. I've been to all the uh, Reformation sites in Europe with my wife. We've stood at the Wittenberg door. We were in the castle church one time in Wittenberg, and nobody was in there. The, even the people, even the, the caretakers had stepped out. So I figured that was a good time to go behind his pulpit and get a picture. Uh, <laughs> so me standing at Martin Luther's pulpit, uh, that was pretty cool. And then we were in the Wartburg Castle in Eisenach where Luther hid uh, out and where he was, uh, when his friends uh, kidnapped him and took him there, where he translated the, the Bible into uh, the vernacular, the German of the day. My wife's great grandfather, my wife's half German, her great-grandfather was the gar- head guard of that castle around 1900. And so, because Eisenach is where her grandfather and her great-grandfather were born. And um, it's where Luther grew up part of his life as well. So when we told the tour guide that, she treated us like royalty and let us into the Luther room, the Luther Stube. So I got a picture of me standing next to Martin's desk inside the room. It was, it was <laughs> guys, I mean, some people like, you know, Peyton Manning to sign their football. I, this, I'm telling you, that was, it was like, this is so cool. This is so cool. Um, I love Reformation history, but I'm not silly about it. People were people. They were doing the best they can at the time they were at and with what they had. Okay? And the, um, I have a blog, if you're ever interested. It's, blog, um, or it's uh, blog.stephentodd.org. And I wrote a blog a couple years ago on Reformation Day, which is October 31st. Uh, called If I Had a Hammer, and talking about some of the downside to that October day, to the Protestant Reformation. There were certainly incredible positives, but there were some negatives. Um, and you need to, we need to understand that Luther came onto a scene when the seat of the Holy Roman Empire had actually moved to Germany. Okay, away from uh, the, the, the political arm of the Holy Roman Empire was in Germany. It, it bounced around several places. It was in Mainz, it was in Bacharach, uh, a couple of different places. But during that time, Germans grew to deeply resent Rome's influence over their lives. Okay? 
And while the Protestant Reformation under Luther was deeply theological, salvation by grace, through faith alone, not of works, the uh, unbiblical nature of indulgences that uh, the they were selling under the authority of Pope Leo X to try to raise money for the completion of St. Peter's Basilica, all of those things. While that is absolutely true, there was a great nationalistic sort of aspect to the Reformation. In fact, while Luther was, was um, taken away and hidden in this castle for his own life, uh, to protect his own life for those 10 months, a great peasant war broke out and some suggest over 200,000 people were killed during that period of time. It was very bloody. It was terrible. In in fact, it was knowing what was going on that led Luther to uh, expose himself and come back out of hiding and try to to steer the ship back. Okay? The challenge is that Germany, in some ways, I don't believe, ever fully recovered. And those seeds of nationalism combined with their faith kind of became, I mean, you see where I'm going with this. You know, there, there's, there was a deep-seated sense of who we are as a national people that really greatly influenced their, their faith, okay? And, and, of course, you know, history bears that out, sadly. Um, on the other side, though, during the same Reformation period, a few years, just a few years into it, just a bit south in Geneva, Switzerland, there was a disenchanted priest by the name of Ulrich Zwingli, And Zwingli was a lot, he was just as passionate as Luther, but he was more angry at at some of the external religious rites and acts of Catholicism than Luther was. If you look at Luther's church in Wittenberg, it's a be- they haven't really changed it. It's a beautiful, beautiful church building. And the high altar and everything looks... You would think it's a Catholic church when you walk in. It doesn't look any different. Uh, if you've been to... Anybody here been to a, a fairly conservative, traditional, liturgical Lutheran church service? Just a handful of you. You would find it to be very similar to a Catholic service. Okay? Um, it, it, would, it would be very similar. Luther didn't change a lot of those externals. Okay, uh, Luther, for example, rather than saying there were seven sacraments, Luther said there's only two, maybe three, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the preaching of the word. Okay, so Luther was theological, but maintained some of the, the, the Catholic worship culture. Zwingli would have none of it. Zwingli believed that the, the church in Rome was thoroughly and completely corrupt, and so Zwingli said that, that I mean... He, Everything had to go. You've heard of um, iconoclasm? Iconoclast, an iconoclast is a person who doesn't like uh, symbols, visual symbols of like sacred things. So um, you have icons, be they paintings or be they statues. Uh, Zwingli ordered th- hundreds if not thousands of religious bits of art and statues and sculptures to be destroyed and taken out of the churches of Geneva. The walls were bare. There would be no ornamentation. He didn't want... In fact, Zwingli actually uh, prohibited congregational singing because he was afraid that it would evoke emotions that would lead people to the paganism of the Roman Catholic Church. If they would sing, they could only sing out of the Psalms. And that was it. 
And only he could preach and pray. Because he wanted to make sure that whoever preached and prayed from the pulpit had correct theology. Amen. Zwingli was really kind of a party pooper. Okay? And Zwingli's influence of the Reformation is what led to the Reformation's um, version up in the Netherlands. And it was in the Netherlands that then English persecuted believers came up and were influenced and then went from there to our shores in 1620 and became the Puritans. Which is why the early Puritan churches were plain and there were no statues or anything. There were meeting halls. It was the, kind of the residual influence of Zwingli. Okay? But one thing Zwingli did do was he wanted to establish Geneva as a Christian city. So Geneva became a Christian community where the laws were the, the, consistent with our, their understanding of Scripture and biblical behavior. Okay? It became a, a Christian state. And it sounds, I mean, you know, when I hear people say things like, you know, we're a Christian nation. Well, nations don't get saved. People get saved. Okay? So... We're Christians, and there is a predominant Christian culture in America, to be sure. But, you know, Geneva was a Christian city, and it didn't always work out that well. Um, in fact, well, there were some positives, you know. I mean, again, you couldn't buy a chicken sandwich on Sunday. Um, Zwingli organized the city. Uh, it lasted about 25 years, by the way, and then there was terribly violent civil war and kind of fell apart. There was a strong biblical focus. They codified biblical values and law. They supported new churches and, and clergy. So a, a, a young, I was a young church planter, sent down from a church in Denver down here to plant a church. And we had, uh, we had six weeks of... of um, I got my salary from that church for six weeks, and that was it. I mean, it was just, you know, that's how they did church planting in those days. Uh, you know, sink or swim. It would have been nice in some ways to be planning a church in, in uh, Geneva because you, you, know, you were the pastor, you were on the city you know, coffers. I mean, you just, you know, it was no problem. The cons, they destroyed artwork and cultural treasures. They had a tendency to th do things like um, uh, burn other Protestants to the death if they didn't agree with their version of, you know, Reformed theology. But then again, on the other side of that, uh, burning at the stake was kind of the... Uh, the conflict resolution tool of that era. So uh, they weren't the only ones doing that. But, it, you know, it, it caused some challenges. Uh, it did lead to a very violent civil war. And, and it didn't last. And sadly, it seems now that, that in some ways it, it has become, uh, Europe has become, if anything, post-Christian. So now we're going to move fast, we're going to move a little quicker. Fast forward the abolitionist movements against slavery. Probably the... The, the, the finer example, in some ways, was probably Great Britain to us. Yeah, Joe. Good question. You seem to have a pretty negative opinion of nationalism. In that... Mm -hmm. what you I do. Zwingli, nationalism, yeah. Germany, and Nazism. Yeah. Not patriotism, but nationalism. nationalism. Well, in the end, judging any kind of movement personally or societally, mm -hmm. I think you have to look at things relative to what else is available. If you look at nationalism as it occurred in Europe, mm -hmm. post-Middle Ages, it was, you could say, it was a reaction, largely led by religious Christian reformers, against the sort of one-world government attitude of the Holy Roman Empire. 
if you look at nationalism as it's occurring, especially in Central Europe, mm -hmm. but also increasingly throughout Europe, manifested in Brexit, mm -hmm. and the proto-Brexit movement in France and other places, it's a reaction to the kind of one-world government imposed on them by Brussels-based EU bureaucrats, which they find contrary fundamentally to many Christian values. Lots of who's behind these nationalist movements are Christians. Mm -hmm. So I think if you think about nationalism as, in a way, kind of like the clothing that God created for Adam and Eve in the garden, it was a temporary protection for them. It was a foreshadowing, ultimately, of the white robes of righteousness that Christ gives us. Mm -hmm. You can see nat nationalism as, in and of itself, in a given historical context, not necessarily a bad thing compared to the alternatives, of the Here's, world, but not yeah. necessarily permanent the ultimate and here's the, the uh, I wouldn't disagree Joe but here's my pushback when the church embraces that nationalism as a part of their own belief system or elite or or faith allegiance is when I get more nervous who is, who is civil today? religion who is doing that today in some well on the on the on our side of the of the aisle I see you know God guns and guts three things that made America free kind of ultra, ultra conservative crowd where I see a nationalism that isn't that far removed from the negatives I've seen in European nationalism, but adding a faith dynamic where I've been in churches where while they're singing the national anthem, people have their eyes closed and their hands in worship um, demeanor while they're, they're, it would seem, worshiping to the tune of the national anthem. That bothers me from a theological and biblical perspective. And I've seen a lot of that in at least some circles I've been in, where uh, the, the nationalism has, re civil religion has replaced the edgy prophetic side to being a follower of Christ who can stand up to either side and say, no, that's not completely right. And that's the, that's, I guess, where I'm headed is I like to make sure the church hasn't married. Can we engage? Yes. But I don't want to marry the state. That's that's. I don't know anyone who does, really. I know some who kind of already have. That's my concern. You know, I, I see some people that they, to them, Christianity, American exceptionalism, and patriotism are all three completely inseparable. Have any of you seen that with people? And I love my country, and I choke up at the beginning of the national anthem when I'm at a ball game, and my son serves in the U.S. Coast Guard, and I, and I, all the, I mean, you know, I don't have to take a litmus test for my patriotism, but I am not first a citizen of this nation. I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God, and I see the marriage of the church and nationalism, I just haven't seen it healthy. I, I, I don't disagree that it was the best they had to work with. I think, I think the, the Germans' response to the Holy Roman Empire and their desire to separate from Rome in the Augsburg Confession, which led really to the Protestant Reformation after Melanchthon wrote that, and some of you are going, oh, that's German uh, Reformation history. I, it was the best they could do, but it did, in, it did kind of seat them into a place where their faith and their country were, you know... If you look at human development, we go through stages. Sure. To look at a teenager and say, gosh, that's really bad that they're so confused about so many things. 
But it's inevitable part of the process of becoming an adult. So it's but it doesn't mean we don't push back against the teenage yeah. kid and say, have you thought about this? Right. Right. We want to be the prophetic outside voice more than the marriage couple. And I'm even having fun at Zwingli's expense. You know, Zwingli was not an easy guy to get along with. You know, I mean, he did tend to burn his uh, opponents at the stake. Um, on the other hand, you know, one of my degrees is from a Presbyterian school that, that identified strongly with, with Zwingli and Calvin, and, you know, and, and they, they contributed a lot of good things. But the, the marriage... The marriage took away the ability, in my opinion, for the church leaders to be able to be prophetic. That's, that's the issue. And, and in fact, um, my point about the abolitionist movement was in, the, in England, which did it about 60, 70 years prior to us, William Wilberforce, it was first the Anabaptist Quaker movement followed by what we would call the low church within the Church of England. Guys like William Wilberforce, John Newton, and others who were the primary force within it. In the U.S., the early supporters of abolition in the U.S., from the readings I saw, were, again, the U.S. Quakers and the Anabaptists and the Pacifists initially. And then some of the others jumped on board. One of the things I, in some of my research I noticed was that both with the abolitionist movement uh, in the Civil War as well as the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, it seemed in the U.S. to be much more geographically divided than it was theologically divided which makes perfect sense. In other words, Baptists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, Catholics, and Episcopalians in the North tended to support abolition and, and support the civil rights movement, and Pentecostals, Methodists, Baptists, <laughs> and Episcopalians in the South tended to oppose it. In fact, one group, I remember this from my American church history class uh, at Fuller, um, one, he was showing us a Presbyterian denomination where it divided between like a liberal and a conservative denomination. And then during the Civil War, so then there were the four. There was the Southern conservative and Southern liberal and the Northern conservative and Northern liberal. The Southern liberal and conservative got back together because they were both so supportive of slavery. And the Northern liberal and conservative got back together because they were so opposed to slavery. It's like they still, that issue overrode their theological distinctions of inerrancy of scripture and all these other things. It was just fascinating, you know. So, uh, again, there was a prophetic voice from the outside um, that, that it, and it was churches typically that weren't as engaged, that were a little more separatistic. Now, the civil rights movement, and, and oh my gosh, that's complex to be sure. But the Southern Christian Leadership Conference was established in 57 as an opportunity to harness both the, the moral authority and organizing power of the black churches. Okay? The first religious groups to jump on with them were the American Jewish rabbinical groups. Then others, Presbyterians, followed. I did find it was interesting, there was a reference in one, one article I read, that the Church of God and the Assemblies of God, while very soft, were among the first, what we would call kind of fundamental or evangelical groups, to support uh, the civil rights movement which is interesting. Um, and the others tended to be, again, geographic. If you were in the South, you opposed it. If you were in the North, you were more likely to support it, regardless of your theological perspective. Evan? Is 
You know, the accusations were that, I mean, I worked for, my, my first job in college, there was this old guy, I mean, God bless him, he was doing his best in life, but he was just an old uh, Teamster Union racist, okay? And he told me with absolute, I mean, he just told me, he said, Martin Luther King, it was a card-carrying communist, I'm telling you what, he had a card in his wallet, he was a card-carrying communist, and that's all there was to it. And that was, the, the, the feeling was, because, the feeling was it wasn't about race, it was about uh, lack of control of states' rights and other issues and a lot of political things. However, there were always religious leaders who said, no, this is not right, you know. And, um, and it's interesting, like I said, I found it fascinating that you had liberal Presbyterians and then kind of quietly Church of God, Pentecostals, and Assemblies of God who were saying, you know, this is, this is actually something good. And a lot of silence in between, okay, with others. A lot of silence um, on it. It does seem to be more, more that way. Now, in our era, how many remember Jerry? <laughs> Jerry Falwell, of course, in the 1970s, late, late, late what's that? Yeah. Um, Jerry established the uh, moral majority, um, and it was probably, in, predominantly, it was in response to Roe versus Wade. Um, what I put here is the prose, very strong biblical worldview, a strong voice for the unborn, strong defense of marriage, uh, religious liberty issues. This is the first time, though, that religious church Christian activism, at least in America, identified primarily with a single political party, the Republicans. In, in, the, uh, um, in the civil rights movement, and, and there, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is that it seemed on some of those, of, of those um, pivotal issues like the sanctity of life, and, and, and uh, definition of marriage and some of those things, it seemed that it was the Republicans that took the, the, the official stance that reflected biblical values as opposed to the Democrats at that point, which seemed to take stances that opposed what people understood to be biblical values. Prior to that, like in the Civil Rights Movement, the difference between a Republican and a Democrat had a lot to do with, with um, size of government and taxation and states' issues but very little to do with what we would call moral issues. Would you all agree with that? I mean, a, a 1950s, 1960s Democrat and Republican, both could be a Pentecostal, both could be a Methodist, both could be sitting side by side and might not know. They just have a different opinion on, on you know, states' rights versus federal uh, size of federal government. And there seemed to be this divide that started happening where it was the, the GOP became kind of the party reflecting these, these biblical values, and then... The, the Democrats were reflecting more of a progressive, some would say liberal or left-wing or, or, or movement away from biblical values. And so then, you know, you, you've, got, you've got an interesting period of time because um, the one challenge was that the religious right, as it was called, almost exclusively identified with one brand of Christian. Okay. There were people of faith that we were all surprised to find out. Do you remember as a, I mean, I, you know, I was in the Jesus movement. You know, I remember the first time talk, having a conversation with a Catholic priest, and I was so shocked to find this guy actually loved Jesus. <laughs> you remember that? It was like, you know, like, oh my gosh, you're talking like a Christian or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, it, the lights went off. 
And, and so we, we, were, we tended to just focus on us, um, not other Christian traditions. And then the other issue was, you know, sin has negative consequences far beyond the act itself. Um, I was a friend of Ted Haggard, you know, who was the founding pastor of New Life Church, and we all know the scandal, what have you. One of the things that never got mentioned, but one of the really unfortunate casualties of that, you know, when, when the scandal happened in 2006, Ted was the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. Just a few months after that, there was a paper that was going to go public that Ted had gotten the signatures of all of the leaders of the National Association of Evangelicals calling for an evangelical response to creation, care, and environmentalism that was outstanding. It would have done, I think, a lot of good to, to put back on the table the idea that followers of Christ also care about this planet and want a responsible uh, answer to you know, the, the concerns that we see out there. Somehow, you know, somehow between you know, burn the rainforest down and go hug a tree has got to be you know, something reasonable in the middle. And unfortunately, after the scandal, that whole thing went away. Yeah. No, no. They, Ted already had garnered the support. And when his successor came in, yeah, he floated it, but everybody was running for cover, uh, quite honestly, back then. I, I mean, I'm being real honest. It was, it, nobody, wanted, nobody wanted to touch anything that had Ted's fingerprints on it. You know, and Ted had really led that. And so it, it's really unfortunate because when I think of things like human trafficking and creation care and um, social justice, uh, even the social justice, you say social justice and people think Democrat, liberal. You think family values, biblical values, then conservative, Republican. Perhaps that's been the one casualty of the religious right movement's effort to engage politics was it seemed to be great where it was great, but silent to other issues. And so the, the other problem was that it just didn't get the support because it seemed to land just in the one political spectrum. It didn't get a broader support from other Christians. And, so, and then, then you get all the people who make fun of it. And I mean, you know, uh, the fundy thing kind of became a laughing stock when a lot of what they were saying was in fact very true. You know, but you, you talk, Joe, about, you know, the, the, the garments for Adam and Eve. It's like people were making fun of the garment without looking at the substance of it, you know, because frankly, some of the people in the religious right didn't put their best foot forward in trying to extend, you know, a, a, a conversational, um, uh, you know, peace pipe, as it were, across the aisle, you know, and, and it became they versus us. You know, and a lot of that language. Uh, you're familiar with Dr. N.T. Wright, um, the retired Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright. Dr. Wright is a wonderful, I mean, amazing theologian. And one of the amazing things about Tom Wright is he actually returns emails. If you can actually get his personal email address, which I got a number of years ago, he actually, he'll talk to you. And he told me in an email we were exchanged that one of the things that amazes conservative biblical Christians overseas, even in Europe, even in England, is America, he said, you guys seem to use a lot of 
he said, Old Testament promised land or New Testament city on a hill language in describing your country rather than describing the church. And he said, we always find ourselves wondering about that. Now, that was an interesting, you know, we're a city on a hill. Well, you look at that passage, it was not talking about a nation. It was talking about the church and the good works of the believer is like a city on a hill. You know, and I thought that was kind of an interesting observation Dr. Wright um, made. So this is, this is where I want to land, though. This little, I got to be honest, I, I can find it. I forget where I found this, and it was brilliant, and it was part of an academic article, and I forgot to attribute it, which means I would get a really bad grade if I were grading myself, but fortunately I'm not, so uh, there you are. But he suggest, the, the author of this suggested historic positions regarding the politics in the church by identifying some, some denominational or religious um, categories. And I, and I really like this. The Anabaptists, that's the Mennonites, the, uh, the um, Quakers, the Brethren, people that historically are pacifist or nonviolent, they're also separatistic. Okay? They tend to believe in not engaging, but, but rather be at a distance. Okay? Um, now, some will engage partially. When it comes to issues like war, the Quakers would be the ambulance drivers and the medics, okay, for example. But, but in terms of politics... It's, it's real slippery ground. They tend to be separatistic. Um, the Lutheran is often viewed as the two-kingdom view. And what I wrote here was that maybe this is influenced by Martin Luther's tendency towards binary combinations. Luther, Luther was kind of a black-and-white, either-or guy. Luther, all, Luther said in one of his lectures to his students that every sermon has to have equal parts law and gospel. The law and the gospel. Give the law, give the gospel. Luther said once, the gospel is bad news to the proud and good news to the humble. He was always kind of either or, either or. I, I wonder if some of the two kingdom idea within, ultimately that developed within Lutheran theology might be a little bit of remnant of that. But it has kind of, there's the Christ and culture and paradox scenario that we talked about last week. Um, in worst case, it allows for a compartmentalization of faith and politics. I'll just live my life in faith and not worry about what that happens over there. And that can be, that's the non-involvement that can be dangerous too. You know, where I, I'm not, I am no longer a prophetic voice. Somebody mentioned Bonhoeffer. You know, Bonhoeffer, he wasn't an evangelical. He would be viewed today theologically as, as more of a progressive Christian. And he was arrested for participating in a plot to murder Hitler, which was radically different than most of the Lutheran clergy of Germany, which were saying, let's just mind our own business and take care of our flocks and just let the government do what the government does. So he, he, we, we, um, we evangelicals have kind of absconded him. Uh, <laughs> there was recently an article written by a, by a very liberal Lutheran theologian, and he said he was ours before he was yours, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But um, the point being, Bonhoeffer broke the ranks from his theological background to say, no, this is so wrong, I've got to do something. And, and people have argued for 70 years now whether or not a clergyman should involve himself in, in a plot to kill or assassinate a, an evil leader. But that's, in fact, what Bonhoeffer was arrested for. Um, and so he broke ranks with what was kind of a... a, a, a they'll do, politics does its thing, we do our thing. You know? 
The Catholics, not, not the Holy Roman Empire, not the Catholic Church of the medieval period, but in modern era, Catholics are intentioned. Similar to above, and the Catholics are hardly monolithic. You can't find, you know, if you have three Catholics, you'll have four opinions. But, um, you know, the, the tendency was that the government will never fully and completely support their dogma and their teachings, so there's always kind of this, this tension that, that the Catholic Church holds with government. Then you go down to the Reformed, um, the integrationists, which Reformed in this case isn't just Reformed theology, would also probably include, because it's our evangelical ancestors, within much of the evangelical movement today has much more of an open, let's integrate, let's engage, let's get right in the middle of it all. Okay? Um, the, uh, on the extreme side, some of your Reformed, ultra-Reformed um, Orthodox Presbyterians tend to be post-millennial, where they see the world just getting better and better and becoming a Christian society. That's, that's kind of a, an extreme that you don't see much anymore theologically. Um, but, but I put some of the, the imagery of a country as a promised land, allowing for co-opting of scripture, you know, city on a hill, speaking about the nation and not the church. The, the concern, not danger, but the concern being, let's, let's stay engaged but not get married to the state. You know? And then finally, the black church, which in this article I read, has a prophetic voice. The church is an integral pillar of their community and society. The pastor sees his pulpit and influence as prophetic in the same way Old Testament prophets called for justice and condemned systematic injustices. Once again, the danger involves wholesale immersion of faith in the political expediency. A good example is, uh, just as one could argue that conservative evangelicals have been kind of absorbed by the Republican Party, um, justice-oriented, Christ-following black churches have been fully absorbed into the Democratic Party. And in some ways, I think they're used as pawns in the same way that I think a lot of political leaders use the evangelical bloc as pawns. I, I got a bump up to first class on one of my trips to Africa years ago, and I sat next to a friend of Vice President Dick Cheney's. It was so bizarre. And he started asking them what I did, and he said, you're not one of them crazy fundamentalists, are you? I said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I said, well, what do you, and he, I was uh, aghast at the lack of respect he had toward true followers of Christ. He viewed us as a block. Yeah, you know, now I'm not saying everybody's that. I'm just saying that's one experience I had with the guy. On the other hand, I have had pastors, African-American pastor friends, who've told me that they are bothered deeply by the fact that their biblical position against same-sex marriage is completely ignored by the Democratic leaders who want their votes. You know, I mean, so... Uh, I'm saying on both sides of that aisle, when you've got uh, engagements, one thing, when you've got a marriage, do we lose our ability to be prophetic? To be a little bit on the outside of the system and be able to speak into it prophetically. So, um, some questions to consider. Has the church been more effective in a prophetic and adversarial position to politics or in a cooperative and fully integrated relationship with political parties? What's better? Uh, you know, somebody said last week, and we were talking about it, that a couple of our, our, as a country, a couple of our longest held 
um, periods of economic growth were when we had a president of one party and a congress of the other party. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah. And and we we don't stand with our, our for example our black brothers and sisters because we're scared of the political affiliations when we all actually agree on so much as deep core beliefs, you know, and, and, and uh, you're absolutely right. And in the same way, I put what are the dangerous concerns of civil religion, we kind of addressed that earlier, and I'm, I'm just throwing this out because it is a genuine issue that some people have strongly. I have, I wouldn't say strongly, I have concerns about this, I have friends who have much stronger concerns about this, but and that is, can some forms of American exceptionalism open the door to nationalism instead? You don't understand about national. Go ahead. I think most people don't even know what you mean. You well, you go, g- give your shot at exceptionalism. No, no, no. No, honestly, honestly. The idea, my understanding is that, that our country, because of the way we're set up and because of our values as a, a, a republic, um, have a, a unique goodness and a unique uh, culture that, that fosters human dignity and liberty. And I mean, I, you know, I don't want somebody to start humming. Right, manifest destiny in a, in a Protestant sort of way. Right. Yeah, and, and, and so to that extent, there's got to be an exceptionalism clause in most new ventures if you have people of faith involved in it. Yeah, and that's where the Koreans actually have the very same thing now. Korean exceptionalism. Because in their revival last century, they think they're the city Zambia does too. Zambia actually put in their constitution about 10 years ago, that we are a Christian country. They actually have an amendment to their constitution. It's interesting, though, as we pull back it up, we the implications of this militarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zambia and uh, Korea don't have aircraft carriers that can park themselves off the shores of any country in the U.S. and aim their nuclear missiles at it and say, you'd like to work with us, wouldn't you? That's <laughs> You know, one of the benefits of travel is to actually see how other people view us, you know. And uh, um, I understand, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've made 41 trips to Africa and dozens more to other parts of the world. And I have seen how our best efforts have been viewed as arrogant by others, you know. Um, 
But here's, coming back down to, we got election in 50 days or whatever. Um, how do we be prophetic, be engaged, without being a little bit adversarial?